Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Antarctica's rich waters attract animals from near and far to feast on a bounty of available prey. From tiny zooplankton to large penguins, baleen and toothed whales take advantage of the surplus in food and gorge to their belly's desire. Cetaceans are not the only creatures drawn to the world's most remote continent in the summer months. Tourists, researchers, and commercial fishing boats travel to the region to witness, study, and exploit the explosion of life. As our oceans face increasingly intense pressures, it's vital that we understand the lives of Antarctica's marine mammals to ensure they are protected and conserved for millennia to come. But considering Antarctica's notoriously harsh conditions and inaccessibility for most of the year, how does one study these important species? How do we go about answering relatively simple ecological questions such as, well, what species are found in the area? Why are they there? When are they there? How do they forage? Where do they go when they leave? And most importantly, how are they faring in today's ever-changing climate? Today's guest has been asking these same questions for many years and shares his decades of knowledge with all of us. To learn about Antarctica cetaceans, I sat down with Ari Friedlander, PhD, Professor of Ocean Sciences and Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, and the Principal Investigator at the Friedlander Biotelemetry and Behavioral Ecology Lab. Ari and I explore the foundational years of his life, including how his sports background helped him become a better marine biologist, when and how whales entered his life, the magical opportunity that began his career in Antarctica, all things Antarctic cetaceans, the discoveries he's made about whales through the use of innovative tech, how he started his relationship with the tourism industry, the cost and benefits of tourism in Antarctica, if the region's fisheries should be shut down or modified, lots of stories from the field, and how he's now shifting his focus to mentoring students and spending time at home with his wife and young children. I learned so much from Ari, and I'm sure you all will too. Please enjoy this exploratory conversation with Ari. Well, hi, Ari. Thank you so much in your busy day to come hang out with me virtually across the United States to have a very fun conversation today. I know, oh, I know we're going to have a blast. I can already tell. But let's, before we get into the incredible stuff you're doing, and I know we're going to go deep in science and deep in who you are and your story. But first, could you tell me and tell everyone listening, in your mind, where does this all begin? Was there a starting day when you were like, hey, this is what I want to do? But from your perspective, where does your journey begin? Um, it's a good question. And I'm excited to be here to talk about it uh, with you. And I honestly, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in nature, uh, when I wasn't interested in animals, understanding what they do or wanting to protect them. I think over over the course of my sort of academic life, I've chosen marine mammals and, and whales and the Antarctic and the places that I work 
But uh, very early on, I think I was pretty well directed towards studying nature in some way. And, you know, I grew up and had streams in my backyard and was at the beach all the time. And frankly, my folks were the ones that that just encouraged me to do the things that uh, made me happy and that uh, would actually make me sit still because <laughs> I had a little bit a little bit of excess energy as a kid. <laughs> so, okay. So then were you always interested in whales? And I, it seems that the more people I sit down with is like, we're called in a certain direction, but maybe we don't exactly know how that'll manifest. We just start going down our path. Was it similar for you or were you like marine biology, freaking day one, this is what I'm doing? Was it like that for you or not? I think the ocean, yes. It was definitely marine biology for me from day one. Um, like I said, growing up around tide pools um, and things in the water were definitely on my mind. I think initially the things I was exposed to in books and television were things like sharks. I can I can vividly remember some, you know, National Geographic or other documentaries about sharks. And, you know, as a little boy, they they bite things and that gets <laughs> that gets you excited. And so I think I think initially that's what drew me in. And honestly, it wasn't until I was an undergrad and did a, a summer class at the Duke Marine Lab, specifically on marine mammals, that they really took hold in my sort of in my mind as something that I wanted to study and work on. Mm. And I think your story is particularly unique in the sense where you also an athlete in college. And I just had a curiosity because I wasn't, I did other extracurriculars when I was in college. I mean, I was always athletic and I lifted a lot and that was one of my ways of managing stress, but I was also a musician in my career. But from you, like you were a competitive athlete. How did you balance that? And in your reflecting back on it, was that an asset? on how you went about your college career? Or what do you feel like the intersection between your athletic, your competitive career, and maybe going into wildlife? Was there an intersection of that at all? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think, so it's like all these things, man, you know, the more you think about them or think back on them, the more I understand connections and and sort of how things um, are connected or, or yeah, where you get some of these insights. And so, for the work that we do, so specifically, we're going out and tagging whales, or we're taking biopsies from whales, working in harsh environments with a lot of equipment. It, it honestly, it is a pretty physical um, and a physically demanding kind of thing. Putting a tag on a whale, holding a twenty-foot pole with a little tag on the end, and trying to place it, you know, in a relatively small area when you're on a boat that's moving. It takes some hand-eye coordination. You know, it certainly does. It helps to be relatively strong. But more than that, I think the lessons of focus um, and working with a team were really things that I see the benefit of. You know, when when I'm in the pulpit and I'm tagging an animal or I'm biopsying an animal, I can absolutely tell you that I can I get into that zone that sometimes athletes talk about where things slow down, your vision is almost tunnel. You're on a boat moving around. I don't feel myself trying to hold on to anything. I don't notice the waves bouncing. My body is just in tune with it. And I'm so focused on what I'm trying to do that my body allows me that opportunity to do that and then uh, take advantage of the situation. And I think that that's something you learn from being in pressure packed situations in sports, to be honest. You know, you're working with something like a beaked whale that dives for 90 minutes and is at the surface for 45 seconds. 
you need to be able to react, to respond, to be prepared for when that moment comes. And just like in baseball, you know, every pitch, you've got to think about, you know, what happens if the ball comes to me? You know, what am I doing? And you can't sort of take time off and let yourself get get relaxed. So in that sense, I think being being athletic and having that hand-eye coordination was really important. I also see or understand, you know, being on a team and having people that have their roles in order to make things work. You know, oftentimes people will say, oh, you know, you're the guy that tags whales, like that must be awesome. You you do great stuff. And I'm like, well, let me tell you about everything that happens up to that point. You know, that putting the tag on the whale is the very last thing in a in a long line of um, a very connected and dependent sorts of things. You know, the driver, the communication between you and the driver, finding the animals, understanding the animal's behavior, talking through all of these things, everybody knowing sort of their role and how to how to play in that role uh, to make it successful is, is really critical. So I definitely think a lot of those were things that uh, – that, that being an athlete and being in those environments and those situations helped me with. Initially, I remember I was in a lab where we had a lot of equipment and a lot of gear to carry. And my main function was, could you lug around this crap? You know, and <laughs> so I could, I could carry a big cooler full of stuff. And I was like, great, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you around if you can, if you can lug all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I swear going somewhere. With this line yeah. of questioning right now. Um, yeah. Was there a point then in your college career where maybe was baseball more important and that's what you wanted to go down more? Or was this the, a side thing that I guess, I guess, okay, if you put baseball and wildlife biology together, were did you want one previously more or were you always like I always want wildlife biology if you could go like reflect on like 19 20 year old Ari what did you want yeah. most back then you know that's, that's a really good thing to think about you know I I grew up in an academic household both my parents you know are professors working at university so I I sort of knew from an early age that the thing that I th- thought my life was going to be and my career was going to be, was going to be learning and somehow education and research. I definitely knew that baseball was an ephemeral thing and that there was going to be a time when I wasn't going to be able to do it. I can think of sort of two moments, though, that really, I think, shifted the balance for me. And during the wintertime, when we were training for baseball, I was really fortunate. There was a professional uh, baseball player who lived in our town and he sort of commissioned me and another couple of folks on the team to train with him in the wintertime. And so I got to see firsthand what a professional baseball player was like, you know, how they trained, what their skills were like, how much better they were, what things I could be sort of think I was sort of competent in or competitive with him in. And I remember, you know, he was a slightly smaller guy than me. We played the same position and I could throw the ball harder than him. But every single other component of the game, an aspect of the game, I saw light years difference between him and myself. And I recognized in that moment, my ceiling for playing baseball would have been, you know, maybe double A. I could I could compete mm. professionally, but not at the highest level. And it wouldn't be a career that didn't make the game any less fun for me. And then the thing that also 
changed for me was when I was playing right after college in an environment that was semi-professional rather than amateur, I saw how the game went from being a game to a job. And mm. a lot of the the innocence of playing it for the love of the sport and for the camaraderie, those were different pressures. You know, it was there's somebody on the bench that wants my job because they want to get paid to play this more, you know, and I always enjoyed it as a competitive thing, but not as this is my livelihood, you know, and I could see how people who knew that that was their key to either getting to a different place in life or, you know, providing for their family. Like I didn't have that drive and I probably didn't have the skills, but at the same time, I, I wasn't the most confident academically for a long time in thinking that I was going to be able to do this as, as a profession and make a living doing it. And to be honest, it was the first people that I worked with, Ann Pops and Bill McClellan, who were the mentors that I learned from when I took this summer course at the Duke Marine Lab. They were the first people that I think really showed me that the things that I was interested in, the curiosity and that sort of wonder and that want to learn was something that um, that they valued, you know, and that I started to see in myself, oh my gosh, like having those traits might be something that can make me successful in this. And having that boost of confidence that from somebody you really look up to and care about is a huge thing, you know? And and so those, those two things kind of happen around the same time where I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be a pro ball player. That's all right. <laughs> um, but there's somebody that might believe in me to actually be an academic or, mm. you know, a professional researcher. Yeah, yeah. And that particular time in your life, I, I wanted to take a moment to chat about because I feel that all of us in our career are sometimes presented with a crossroads or maybe there's an instance where we want two different things or we feel like we're missing out or we lost something really special and dear to us because of that. And I've met a lot of athletes that for some reason or they had a major injury and they couldn't move on or, you know, something like that where it almost feels like maybe things happen for the worst when in reality, mm -hmm. when now that we're a lot, a lot older and can reflect back and it actually happened for the better. I know I've had multiple of those as well. And so, you know, when you don't get caught up, you know, get drafted or something, you're like, I can't only imagine that, what that feels like. Or, you know, the moment I realized I didn't want to go to vet school anymore. That was one of the scariest right. moments of my life. When you prepare all of your life to do one thing, and then in a moment, you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like a really scary moment. And I know that I think a lot of us go through that in our own way, in our own journey. And so now that we'll start diving into all the incredible stuff you did or, and are doing and have done, <laughs> it's okay that that part maybe just that didn't work out. But you can still play. You know, if kids you can go out and play still, you can go to games, you can watch, follow your favorite team, you know, all of these different things. You can still be involved in the thing. Whoops, I hit my mic. You can still be involved in the thing without necessarily having to dedicate your entire life to it, like that you might have thought would previously been the thing for you. Yeah, you know, and I did have, I, I I wish I could remember the timing of when these things occurred, but I, you know, I remember uh, having a, going to an open tryout, I think it was with the Mets, you know, after I had graduated and, you know, went to the tryout, did everything there and, and they just sort of said, you know, thanks, you know, but no thanks. And I remember saying like, well, you know, like, can I, can I at least keep the bat? You know, if you're going to crush my childhood <laughs> dreams, I, I need to take something from you, you know? So, you know, I kind of remember doing that. And I remember driving home and calling my my 
folks. I think I talked to my mom and I had to pull over and I was like, they didn't want me, you know? And it was, it was just straight up rejection at that point. And I, I felt awful. You know, I was, I was devastated in the moment, even though I knew, you know, in my heart, I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player, but you think about, like I said, I, I thought about how much I loved doing it and competing and to sort of have someone say, okay, well, you've, you've reached kind of the finish line of what you're going to do in that. That was really painful. And then it really wasn't too much longer after that, that the folks in North Carolina got in touch with me and were like, hey, Ari, we'd love to have you join our lab. We got this grant. We'd love to re- for you to come down and sort of, you know, and work with us on this. And that part I can remember distinctly, you know, and it was like on a Thursday. And I think we talked about this before. And I remember like being like, yeah, that sounds great. Like, um, what, you know, what are we talking about? And uh, they're like, well, how's Monday? You know, how's Monday for you? <laughs> I was like, like four days from now? They're like, yeah, like, why not? Come on down. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, how do I get there? They're like, where are you? You're in Connecticut? Okay. Yeah, you take uh, take 95 South to North Carolina, and then you'll hit 40 East. And take that to Wilmington, and then um, that ends, and you'll see the university, and we're in the biology building. And just, like, look around for us. I remember being like, huh, okay. And went home, and I was like, hey, Mom, Dad, uh, I'm going to be going to North Carolina. Um, so I'm going to pack up the car and uh, be on my way. And that was, I mean, that was, that was, like, literally it. And honestly, I think the fact that I then showed up was sort of like step two for these people of like, oh, okay, this, this kid's serious. Like, I guess we should figure out what to do with him. <laughs> and is this when Wales entered your life? Well, so that would have been after college. Um, I, I did the course at Duke between my sophomore and junior year and as part of sort of like my, my junior year abroad. And then I did a semester at sea where I learned to sail and do marine biology and I think, you know, those two things combined gave me that confidence of like, hey, I can do this. I enjoy this. I'm good at it. I kept in touch with those folks from the class during my junior and senior year. I went to a conference and met them once, I remember. And I just I just kept in touch with them. And it was a little harder back then because uh, I don't know that we all had email. I know I, I knew I had an email account and I could check it, but a lot of it was, you know, calling them or writing letters. And then, yeah, they just, um, they just, kind of took a shot on me. That is so freaking cool. So were were you with them when you started to study whales then? Cuz I mean that's that's kind yeah. of a jump or, or or did you like take a job with them after you graduated or yeah, how did you start to study whales? Yeah, so so after that summer class I went to yeah, I went to my college and I said, "Hey, look, like I've done everything I can here in the biology department. I'm interested in marine biology and marine mammals." can I seek these outside opportunities to do things? And they said, absolutely. You know, we really encourage that. And so luckily the folks that I was working with in North Carolina, they had a very good colleague that was at the Mystic Aquarium who was their their head research veterinarian. And I remember when I, uh, after the Duke course, and I, I sort of told them where I lived and what I did, Ann Paps was like, yeah, hold on one sec. She like writes down something on a piece of paper, just like gave it to me. She's like, find David St. Oban at the Mystic Aquarium and give him this piece of paper and <laughs> tell him we sent you. And so I, I literally like did that. I, I went to the Mystic Aquarium because it was it was nearby where I grew up and I was at home in the summer. And I just kind of like showed up at the aquarium and I was like, hey, uh, my name's Ari. I've got this note from Ann Paps to give to David St. Oban. Is he around? And like, you know, the person at the front desk like called back and 
I met this guy, David Cena Band. I was like, yeah, so supposedly we can hang out, do something. And he just kind of like <laughs> looked at it and laughed. And, you know, there was nothing formal about it, but he was right. like, sure, absolutely. Love to hang out. Like, let's find something for you to do. And he was, he was wonderful. He was uh, just a, a sweetheart of a person and basically took me in as like an intern. And I got to see the husbandry side of, of working with live animals at the aquarium. I saw the veterinary side of it. I, I worked with stranded animals um, during the summer and and got exposed to, you know, a variety of things. And I had it as a job, right? It was like a structured time thing. And it's what I woke up and went to do every morning. And after that, I, then I was, I was hooked. You know, I just, mm. I've been so lucky to see all of these different things that you can do with marine mammals from, you know, captive research to husbandry to, to veterinary work to, to strandings to field work. And I got to see it all and be mentored and guided through with just some amazing people that, that were just willing to give opportunity. Mm. And it set the foundation for the next phase. So yeah. the next phase, okay. How does one just randomly go to Antarctica as somebody who really wants to go and works in conservation tourism and still hasn't gotten <laughs> to Antarctica? How yeah. in the hell did you go from working at the Mystic Aquarium and learning all these incredible things to being on a ship going down to Antarctica. So clearly a lot had to happen between step one and two. What, how did you yeah. get there? How did this begin, the launch of your amazing career? Well, they weren't specifically connected. I can tell you that. Mm. You know, so, when I, so when I got to North Carolina, the thing that we were doing was we, at the university where I was, we ran the stranding network. And so... Literally, my job was to drive the beaches of North Carolina constantly, pick up the dead animals, do a little bit of information taking in the field, bring back animals to the lab where we would necropsy them. And the reason for that was twofold. One, the lab that I was in was an anatomy and morphology lab. So literally taking the animals apart, studying the musculature, the skeleton, everything about these animals and how they're put together so that they can function in, in an ocean environment. But at the same time, understanding why the animal died, you know, and more and more we would get beach cast animals that were entangled in fishing gear, that had ingested plastic, you know, that were human induced mortalities. And so I started to get interested, obviously, in the anatomy side of things, but also like, why are these animals dying? Like, we got to do something about this. And there was a, a group of researchers in North Carolina, uh, and we would get together and we would do these necropsies together. It was how nerds bond, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I remember it was like one winter we had picked up two spotted dolphins on the Outer Banks in North Carolina, and we brought them back to the Duke Marine Lab because that was the closest place. And there was a guy who had just started working there as a professor named Andy Reed. I thought he was pretty cool. He had a mustache. He was, you know, he was awesome. And we're literally like cutting up these dolphins. And he's like, he's like, hey, Ari, what are you doing? Like, uh, what are you doing in April? And I was like, I'm going to, you know, probably be picking stuff up off the beach, just do what we're doing. And he's like, all right, well, you know, I just came back from this uh, international meeting and this, this Australian colleague of mine is looking for an observer to go and do some work in the field. Like, are you, you think you could go? And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, what's the deal? He's like, oh, good. She's going, they've got this Antarctic work. They'd be, you know, going from Hobart, Tasmania down and spending a bunch of time in the ice. And I was like, is this a good thing? Or like, are you trying to get rid of me? Is there a reason like you're asking me? <laughs> Context, He's like, no, I please. You... Exactly. He's like, no, I thought you might, yeah, might be interested. And so I was like, yeah, sure. Sounds, sounds like a fun adventure, you know? And 
So he put me in touch with this woman and she was like, yeah, you know, we're, we're going on this trip. I need somebody to count whales. It had not occurred to me that, you know, Australia was literally the other side of the world that I was getting on a ship to go to the Antarctic in April and May, which is winter time in the Antarctic. Yes. I was, I'm just, you know, kind of gung-ho little dude here. <laughs> you know, I, but first of all, I remember getting to Tasmania and being like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. The people are friendly. It's like this wonderful town. I fell in love with, with, with Tasmania and with the people there just immediately. You get on the boat, you know, it was this massive icebreaker. I'd never been on a big boat before. I, I kind of had to pretend like I knew what I was doing, though. <laughs> um, it's just sort of like, well, okay, um, kind of trying to fit in. Uh, I was the butt of jokes for a long time. And I think one of the things that allowed me to, to do well there was to endear yourself to the Australians. The way to do that is to basically just let them make fun of you for a while and then eventually start <laughs> pushing back on it a little bit. Um, but I, I did this strip, like I said, going to the Antarctic in wintertime. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, right? And we ended up going to this area called the Mertz Glacier Polinia. A polinia is an area in the wintertime that remains ice-free because the winds are so strong that it literally blows the water away, helps to upwell warm water, and it keeps it ice-free for animals to survive. So we broke through ice for a week to get to this area, and then it was windy as hell, obviously. Air temperature was like minus 30. Uh, was sort of Great. like the average. Yeah, it was a wonderful. Beautiful. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you could go outside for about two minutes at a time before <laughs> your lungs would like freeze and your snot was frozen to your face. And I probably saw a handful of whales, and it was like a two-month trip. And I fucking loved it for some reason, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I think because I got like this confidence of like, ha, huh, someone put me in the field. I was successful at it. I can do, I can be okay in the cold, you know, and I feel okay in this environment. And I got back and I remember talking to the woman. I was like, this changed things for me. Like you now have a problem. Like you got to figure out what you're going to do with me and like, <laughs> keep me, you got to keep me busy. And luckily um, over the next three years, she was working with the Australian Antarctic program and they had opportunities for people to continue to go down and, and do some survey work. And so I would sort of spend six months of the year in North Carolina. And then I would Jan December, January, I would go to Australia get on their ships and work for them for, you know, those three or four months. And that's when I started to get exposed to on these ships, there's oceanography happening. There are five or six different projects and you are one component of all of these things that are happening. You're in a com completely confined space, you know, so you can't get away from uh, the activity and you're constantly part of it. And so that very quickly helped me recognize, okay, this is how science gets done in the field. If I'm interested in whales and I want to understand what they do and where they go and how they live, someone else has to be measuring another component that I'm going to need, you know, to utilize. And so I sort of figured out in that sense, how oceanography and ocean science worked. And then I just got really lucky because this woman also uh, had been invited to participate in this National Science Foundation program, this really large program called the Southern Ocean Globec Program. And this was literally to go and spend two falls and two winters in the Antarctic studying the processes that happen in the, in the winter because no one had really ever, ever done that. 
And it coincided very nicely with when I finished my master's degree and when I was looking for my PhD project. And so she basically gave me the opportunity and said, this is going through the U.S. You know, National Science Foundation. If you're interested in this, like, I'd, be, I'd love for you to do that. So I was able to sort of leverage that and take that to, you know, Duke basically and say, hey, I've got this project. I'd love to do my PhD in your lab. And luckily this guy, Andy Reid, who sent me initially, uh, I was like, yep, like I'm back. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I'll buy <an> egg. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Uh, so he, he, was, he was stoked on, on giving me a chance. And, uh, and so he did. And it was also at that point that I also realized, I mean, I wasn't a great, I mean, I was a good student. I was excellent in the things I cared about. But for the things that I didn't care about, I just, I just didn't have the the attention or the time or the or the will, you know. And I, you know, my my scores, my GPA, my GRE scores were nothing exciting. But Andy had references from the people that I had worked with, and he sort of knew me, and I think was willing to give me a chance, like like Ann Pabst and Bill McClellan were, because of the interest and the the passion you know, and the the more intangible things that I think can make you successful rather than the 4.0 student who already knows everything and knows what's going on. And I, I sort of realized that more and more once I became a professor and I was bringing in graduate students and I was like, holy shit, how did I ever get in? You know, like <laughs> these people must have like vouched for me or fought for me because, at a, you know, at a place like Duke, you're picking who you want to come be there. And he must have had to put up a fight and say, I believe in this person and I want to give them a shot and I'm, I'll take on the risk basically. And, you know, he never said any of that stuff to me, but I, there's no way that he, it wouldn't have come up. And so I'm internally grateful, you know, that someone took a shot, you know, on me. And so that's a lot of how I choose my team and choose the people I work with now is like, great. You've done everything. Why do you need me? You know, I'd rather give somebody a chance to, to find themselves and grow into this rather than already come as this, you know, finished product. Mm, yeah. As a quick side note, isn't Andy Reid also the name of the Chiefs coach? Am I wrong? It is. It is. Because <laughs> he comes like Andy Reid. I'm like, isn't the guy with yeah. the mustache? <laughs> he has, and Andy has a mustache too. I mentioned that. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're spelled differently, but uh, yeah, you're right. I like sports. And you go, I think all the sports talk got me. We're going to talk about all this baseball, and baseball's really big right now, and then all the playoffs are going yep. on right now, and then football's getting ready to start. I'm like, Andy Reid, isn't that like yeah. total, yeah. total tangent there? But okay, I so, think about it. I think about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you do? <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one that goes to side tangents. So, okay, okay. So. You now have this incredible opportunity and funding, which that's massive. So then is this when your Antarctic whale work really took off? Is this like during your PhD? What did you study? I mean, obviously you've been down there like a gazillion times since then, but I'm assuming that this was like ground zero of launching everything. So what did you go do? Yeah. Um, so up until this point, Antarctic whales had really not been studied. Logistically, people hadn't come up with the, 
the reasoning or the proposals to study them in a way that that justified massive ship time and massive effort. And, you know, fair enough, there wasn't a lot of technology to study them. I was, my PhD program was really about understanding how animals are distributed in their environment and what are the features of the environment that that best predict and best relate to where an animal is going to be. And so we would go survey these massive areas for months at a time. I'm counting where whales are. There are other folks who are measuring salinity, water temperature, zooplankton, you know, a hundred different things about the environment there. And each one of them is basically creating a layer, an environmental layer. And I use, you know, GIS was sort of new at the time, but I was in a landscape ecology lab that was starting to, for the first time, develop these layers of environmental variables in the ocean. And then effectively what you do is you say, if these are the 20 points where you saw a whale, sample each of these layers and tell me about, is there a specific temperature? Is there a range of zooplankton? Is there a depth or a distance to shore that animals tend to be found at? And so effectively what I did was I looked at humpback whales and I looked at minke whales and I said, what can we learn about these two species and how they distribute themselves in the environment given what they need to survive? And so it was not rocket science in that sense. It was finding relationships between an animal and its environment, which, you know, people do it all the time, hadn't been done in the Antarctic. I had the benefit of all these other people who were doing really high quality science to provide the, the variables for it. But the main thing that honestly came out of that was that I can remember this when Andy was sort of at the PhD um, graduation ceremony and sort of talking about each of your students. And he said, you know, look, the thing that is the most remarkable about the work that Ari's done is that he showed that we can do whale research successfully in the Antarctic, you know, mm. that we've overcome however long the, the you know, whatever obstacles were in our way, either intellectually, um, because people didn't think that whales were part of the ecosystem and required us to do that, or logistically getting down there and actually collecting the data and making some meaningful ecological inferences. And I, I totally buy that. You know, I wasn't setting the world on fire with the knowledge, but yeah, I showed that we can do this. You can go down, work in a difficult environment and learn something compelling about these animals. And that made me feel really good because like I said, intellectually, I wasn't going to, you know, challenge for the biggest brain, but I was, I cared a lot. I was determined and I wanted to see it happen. Now, at the same time as I was Starting my PhD, when I was working in North Carolina, we started working with some colleagues that had developed this new tagging technology. And this is the first motion sensing and underwater and acoustic recording tags were just coming online around 2000, 2001. And again, serendipitously, we were in the field working on the same boat as this other group of people, this guy, Doug Novacek, who was studying right whales and putting these tags on right whales. And, you know, the guy who can hold the pole, who's not afraid of, you know, kind of getting knocked around and stuff. I sort of picked that up and said, you know, let me give this a try. Came really naturally to me. I was able to be good at tagging these animals. That got me into this community of people who were interested in how do we use these tag data to understand animals. And so I had this Antarctic opportunity with, with whales and I had this 
potential new skill and tool to study them underwater. The next step for me after I graduated was, how do I keep going to the Antarctic, understand these animals more, and make this what I want to do for the rest of my life? And so that's when we started developing a proposal to go down and put these tags on, on, on whales in the Antarctic and measure the prey around them and understand the relationship between the whales and their prey. And took a few years to write that proposal. I was a really precocious postdoc at that point. And I was like, here's the proposal. I want to submit this to the NSF. And people were like, slow down, man. You can't submit that. Like, you're a postdoc. You're not allowed to do this. And I was like, come on. I was like, I've done all this stuff. Like, I know all this stuff, you know? So I literally had to go to my friend Doug, who was at Florida State, be like, hey, Doug, I got an idea. How about we submit a proposal to the, you know, to the NSF to go do tagging work in the Antarctic? And he's like, great, come down to Florida. Let's write this up together. And I like showed up and I was like, all right, here's the proposal. And it's like, already oh. done. Just submit it, please. Right <laughs> yeah. And Doug's like, absolutely, I'll do this. It sounds great. Let me let me look this over, make sure everything looks okay. You know, but I was like, here we go. And, you know, he helped develop the ideas, obviously. But we submitted that and eventually the NSF couldn't find any reason not to fund it. You know, it was mm. like, it's 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 like... This is an awful analogy, but it's like when you're really attracted to someone and you just like won't let them reject you forever. And finally yeah. <laughs> they, br they break down and give you a chance. You know? yeah. I felt like, I'll go on the I date. Like, okay. I'll go exactly. on the date. Fine. Okay. Fine. <laughs> and I, I feel like I feel like the NSF was so begrudging of giving us this this grant to go do whale work. So begrudging, in fact, that they said, great, we'll let you go to the Antarctic. Here's the catch. You can either go in May or June or not at all. And we were like, what are you talking about? There's no whales in the winter. How can we go down in the winter? Like, that's going to be horrible. And they're like, well, take it or leave it. That's when there's ship time for you. Oh, and, God. And I remember we were shitting our pants. And we like, yeah. we're like, okay, we're, I, I guess we're going down in wintertime. Um, and, and this is really where I think the most magical time of my life really happened because – we, we started combing through the literature and the latest we could find anybody going to the Antarctic was March, you know, and they were like, mm -hmm. oh, we mm -hmm. saw some whale. And it was on a sailboat. They just wrote their kind of journals. We saw some whales in this place called Wilhelmina Bay and we were kind of riding around here. This is where we thought whales were. And so we get down there in, you know, May and you know, there's five or six hours of daylight. It's cold. It's dark. And we were like, shh are we ever going to find whales, you know? Right. And like, they were, what are we going to do? And we, the, the ship kind of comes into this bay at night and we're, we're kind of getting close and the captain's like, where do you want us to go? You know? And, and basically I was like, the only place we had talked about that we knew was this place called Wilhelmina Bay. So I was like, we're going there. Like, let's get in as far as we can for first light. And as we're kind of going in, you know, the, the ship has echo sounders that are mapping the, just like fish finders that are mapping the water column. And so whenever there's something that, you know, bounces the sound off of it, that's different density from water, it turns a different color. So, you know, big red splotches would be prey patches, you know, blue and green would be these little dispersed prey. And as we're going in, it's just kind of like evening time and we're hanging out in the labs and someone like looks up at the monitor on the screen and it was like almost all red. And we're like, hmm. huh. 
like echo sounders must be broken. You know, it thinks right. like the whole water column is full of krill or something. And we all kind of like watched it for like a couple hours. And it was just like this red krill monster that went across the screen. And we're like, holy shit, are those all krill? You know, and like we had no idea what was going on. Park the ship, wake up the next morning. And literally there are hundreds of whales around us in this bay, oh, just snoozing and sleeping. We were like, what the fuck? And yeah, like it's a goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I think we're going to be okay, <laughs> you know? Um, and then it was like, you know, it just went went off from there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is incredible. I mean, again, you've proven that one, you just made history there. I'm sure that was a new discovery. I mean, I'm sure that no scientist before had studied that, that, that particular phenomenon. So what species were there? What whales were there? So that was all humpbacks. Um, mm. Yeah, and so you're you're right. It was a phenomenon that we hadn't witnessed before. We had no idea that these animals aggregate down there. We had no idea that the krill moved inshore like this. And so it was really a blessing for us because we got to go down, discover, like you said, something brand new to science at a time of year where we had no idea what was happening. And so if you think about, you know, like the feeding season or the, you know, the season of an animal, we caught the tail end of it and we're able to document it in a really rich and a very compelling and a very quantitative way that allowed us to then just start asking questions and say okay if this is what happens at the end of the year we need to fill in all these blanks and figure out what happens all the you know in, in the time that leads up to this you know and and that's kind of what we've done is is we use that as an opportunity to say we can tag whales in the antarctic we can biopsy them we can measure how they interact with prey and we've done it in a really quantitative way at this time of year. Now we've got to do it at all these other times of year. So we understand sort of the bigger picture of how whales and krill function in this environment. So cool. Perfect segue to get real nerdy on science. So yeah. I would love, I've not studied Antarctic whales. So it's just not been top of my to-do list, <laughs> but, but I'm still just as fascinated about it and why I love sitting down with experts because we get to learn from you, from someone who has studied it. So could you just basically give me like Cetacean 101 in Antarctica? What species are there? What time are they there? Why are they there? Is it food? Is it breeding? Is it all of the above? Yeah, maybe just if you could prop, <laughs> if you could condense like a five hour you know, lecture down into whatever time window you need. Could you maybe teach me to everyone listening what we what we need to know about the acetations down there? Yeah. So I'm going to start about 35 million years ago and looking at the, the beautiful abstract map that you have on your wall. Oh, yeah. 35 million years ago, as the continents were just kind of... There we go. You can kind of see it. Yeah, so I can kind of see it. I can pull it up a little bit. There we go. There it is. Okay. So there it is. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's a there's a whole there's a whole lot of white space around the Antarctic right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of land, right? It's a piece of land with ocean all around it. So 35 million years ago, whatever it is, Antarctica finds its home at the bottom of the planet. The Antarctic circumpolar current, this current of water that is unabated by land, starts to circulate around there. It sets up the conditions for upwelling coastally and in this Southern Ocean, upwelling of nutrients and sunlight provide the opportunity for massive phytoplankton growth, which leads mm. to a lot of zooplankton growth. So in the oceans at that time, there was this massive biomass 
of food at the very primary production and primary consumer levels. Marine mammals had gone back into the water from being land animals and had teeth when they first entered the water. The first evidence of baleen shows up in the fossil record about 35 million years ago, very likely as a response to the massive availability of very small animals in the ocean. So if you look back over evolutionary time, manta rays, sharks, basking sharks, whale sharks, all of these independent evolutions of big animals in the ocean that are filter feeders, right? Mm. Massive amount of biomass at the, at the basic, uh, sort of the primary consumer level. If you want to get big in the ocean, feed on things that are very small. If you want to feed on things that are very small, figure out a way to get a lot of them out of the water easily. That's what filter feeding's about. So baleen whales started to evolve at this time of year to take advantage of all of the zooplankton that were available to them. Now, those whales started out relatively small, you know, three to five meters. And then over time to where we are today, you have more coastal upwelling, you have more glacial cycling in more places in the world where you have the same processes. Monterey Bay has this, you know, where you have the mm. conditions that persist oh. for a long time to allow for these massive blooms of phytoplankton. And because of that, a major base of the food web of zooplankton. And so baleen whales only got as big as they are today a few million years ago. So we're, we're living sort of in this time of giants where the biggest animals that have ever existed exist in our extant today because of all the conditions around the world's oceans that promote that much food being available to them. So that's how you get baleen whales. The Antarctic is a really critical place because you have a massive amount of upwelling, high nutrients and sunlight in the summertime. So you have a huge opportunity for food there. Historically, blue whales, fin whales, right whales, humpback whales, say whales, minke whales, almost every species of baleen whale was found in big numbers in the Southern Ocean. And then we figured out how to kill whales really effectively and efficiently around 1900. So mm. from 1900 to about 1980, over 2 million baleen whales were killed in the Antarctic. First the blue whales, then the fin whales, then the say whales, then the humpbacks, just going down in size, this commercial massive slaughter, nearly you know, extirpated a number of species for this environment. 360,000 blue whales, 725,000 fin whales, you know, 300,000 humpback whales, That's all nuts. removed from the system in a very short period of time. So we can look back at these whaling logs and say the places we go today used to have blue whales, used to have fin whales. Today, if you go down to the Antarctic, you see a shit ton of humpback whales and you see some minke whales around the Antarctic Peninsula. Fin whales are just starting to kind of creep up in numbers. Blue whales are still very, very rare. And it's because we stopped killing them 30, 40, 50 years ago. These are long-lived animals like us that don't mature until their teenage years. They don't reproduce until, you know, until then. And then it might be every three or four years that they have a kid. So population growth for some of these animals is gonna take a long time to recover. But in the absence of all those whales, you have humpback whales, which are not in a bad way. They're, they're kind of the minivan of the, of the baleen whales, right? They're a little bit of everything. So they're medium-sized. They're incredibly effective at finding food. They can feed socially. They have these very tight breeding grounds. So it's easy to find a mate, even if your mm. population levels are, are low, which is something we kind of forget about. Um, if your population's low, 
and you don't have a centralized breeding ground, finding a mate can be really challenging. So humpback whales have a life history that promotes all going to the same place. You're now in an environment where a lot of things that ate krill, like blue whales and fin whales, are gone. So there's almost an overabundance or a surplus of krill there available for you. The things that limit you in your ability to reproduce are, can you find a mate and can you have enough energy for it? So humpback whales figured this out pretty quickly. Their numbers have skyrocketed because there's no competition and they can find mates really easily. So humpback whales are a nice success story now and we see really good population growth from them in this environment. Couple that with the fact that around the Antarctic Peninsula, it's warmed about five degrees Celsius in the last 50 years, meaning that there's fewer and fewer days in many poor years where there's not a lot of sea ice cover. Hmm. Humpback whales aren't an ice kind of living species. They need open water. So the environment that has all this krill is now open to them with no competition for the food, and they have just kind of gone gangbusters. So their populations are doing great. There's a population of minke whales that lives around there, very enigmatic. We know that they associate with sea ice, but we don't have a great idea about how many there are, whether they're increasing or decreasing. We know that their habitat is decreasing quite a bit. So very likely the number of minke whales around the Antarctic Peninsula is decreasing. Fin whales we think are increasing. Like I mentioned, we do see sort of more and more of them and, and bigger groups of them. So we have some nice inklings of population change, which are good. The difference is that we have to sort of, we have to quell that sort of excitement because as climate change and warming occurs in this part of the world, krill are very intimately tied to sea ice. And the fact that you have fewer days of ice cover and more bad ice years means that the standing stock of krill is being reduced. You don't have as good recruitment of juvenile krill when you don't have a lot of sea ice. So in bad ice years, you have fewer and fewer krill. And we actually see this manifest as lower reproductive rates in the humpback whales. Mm. So now we've gone from an environment where krill was this massive surplus to in really crappy ice years, prey is actually limiting and it's limiting the reproduction in baleen whales. So you have this limitation or this decrease in krill because of global warming that's going on. And then like, just for good measure, like let's throw on some more human activity. There's a krill fishery that exists in this part of the world that is takes relative to the entire biomass of krill, not a whole lot, but they focus in on these areas. If you remember, big patches of krill in the wintertime, right where the whales are, where do you think the krill fishery goes? It does most of its fishing. It's in these same places at the same time of year as where the whales are feeding. So mm. there's this direct competition for krill between a fishery and the whales. Double that sort of with the climate change issue that we've got. And whales in the most pristine and wild place in the world are kind of getting, you know, a one-two punch from, from climate change and krill fishing. And have you seen this in your career in like the 20 years that you've been going on and studying them? Have you started to like personally, because that's that's relatively short amount of time, like two decades. It really isn't that long. We're talking about these timescales. Are you seeing a difference? Absolutely. You know, when I started going down, you know, 1998, 99, 2000, I can vividly remember the, you know, when you're in the Antarctic, the, the backdrop is just this unbelievable spine of mountains and glaciers all around you. And 
you'd see very little uncovered rock. You know, it's just all ice covered. And now you go down in the summertime, there are, you know, muddy beaches. There are mm -hmm. places that I know were ice covered and peaks that were white that are now just, you know, kind of barren and kind of rock covered earth. And I have some colleagues that are down in the Antarctic right now doing some seal research. They had a day that was 45 degrees Fahrenheit like what? two weeks ago. It's like it's like eight degrees Celsius below the Antarctic Circle, which is bullshit. You know, it's like That's absolutely changing before our eyes, you know, and yeah. So you see it visually. You see it in the species that are present now. You see it in the species that are that are having trouble there. And it's a place that's changing incredibly quickly. And what do you think then is going to happen in the future? I mean, I don't like to be all doom and gloom, but I also am a realist. Like what, <laughs> what are you seeing? If, the, if this trend continues, what might happen? Good, bad, in between? What do you think? The thing that I think is, is going to continue to happen is so the peninsula sticks up kind of north-south. And so you get this climate warming coming from the north, going to the south. So basically you have Antarctic conditions being pushed farther and farther south. If you think about the Antarctic continent, like it kind of looks like the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, right? It's like this big <laughs> yeah, disc with this one little thing sticking out, right? So that yeah, little thing sticking out is the peninsula. The rest of the Millennium Falcon is pretty stable. Right. It kind of has its own atmosphere and circulation. It's relatively stable. But that peninsula that that is open to the ocean and that ocean that is warming is creating more warmer and more moist conditions. It changes everything about the peninsula, you know, and it makes it a less polar environment. So what we're going to see are things like humpback whales. Other animals that don't don't have a tolerance for sea ice are going to become much more present. Gentoo penguins, for example, a subantarctic species, have infiltrated this area. Adelie penguins, which are an ice-obligate species, their distribution is being pushed farther to the south. Minke whales, ice-obligate species, we're very likely to see their population get pushed farther to the south. And you will just have sort of a, an introduction of an, an ecosystem in an environment that's just not polar anymore. It would be, it'd be more similar to Alaska you know, than it would mm. be to the Antarctic. And you put on top of that, the fact that krill are really connected to that sea ice, this place, the peninsula that has historically been a source for krill for a vast area of the Antarctic and subantarctic, as those krill resources continue to decrease, you're just going to limit the amount of wildlife and amount of other animals that rely on krill to be able to exist. Okay, that's pretty scary. But again, reality is reality. So how yeah. are you studying this? I know you have your own lab now, and I, I, you know, I dove really deep into all the things that you all do. So I guess, how, how are you monitoring this? And what is the application, if that makes sense? Like, how is the science... Because I'm all about application. Like, you know, yeah. we, can, we can know everything, but until we do something about it, like, was it even worth it? So... What are you like? What are the pillars of what you're working on the projects, and how is that being applied to maybe how can we make the situation better? Do we make the situation better? What um, governing bodies are making the decisions that might have some influence on what's going to happen with the wildlife down there? Yeah, yeah. How does that? What's the translation there? It's 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 a really good question, and 
I feel more and more comfortable being in the position I'm in now to, to be a voice for that, given how successful we've been in our science and how much sort of credit we've garnered, you know? And so to me, there, there are two issues, right? There's climate change and there's krill fishing. And those are the two things that we know have immediate and, and negative consequences on whales, but also on the ecosystem as a whole. So I sort of have taken the, the opportunity to say, how do we minimize the impact of both of those? And so part of that is a bit of a long game of saying, how do we collect data that is going to show the things that we want to show that we know take a long time to be able to show, you know, like mm -hmm. reproductive rates in humpback whales. We're going to keep collecting samples every year. And now we've got a 15 year time series where we can say, hey, look, when we see decreased population uh, pregnancy rates, it's now linked to bad sea ice. We can make that connection, like check that box. Okay. Krill fishing. We know that animals are now getting caught in krill nets, and we know that the krill are being taken out from an area not only where the whales are, but they're targeting the same types of prey, same patches of krill at the same time and place. Yeah, we've demonstrated that. We've put tags on whales. We can show that. So we've we've done sort of this, this first step of showing that there are these, these very direct connections between human activity and negative consequences. So now what we need to do is we need to work at the ground level, work with organizations that have a huge public you know, presence, huge social media presence, Netflix, BBC, National Geographic, WWF, all of these groups that are interested in doing natural history with a conservation focus. I provide opportunities for them to come work with us. They fund us to go put tags on whales. We get video from these animals that's never been seen before we have an opportunity to engage with the public at a level that before social media, we would never have had the opportunity to do. We can create a base or a ground level that has the Antarctic on their mind, that understands what's happening there, that sees the animals even if they're not there. You know, we can get some pretty compelling drone footage or tag footage to get people excited about these. Then the top-down approach is to say, okay, Camelar, International Whaling Commission, the groups that manage the krill fishery, you need to consider the science that we are doing right now. And the Antarctic is a special place that has its own treaty system. And we need to shift the burden of proof from show me that there is an impact on these animals to show me that what you're doing doesn't have an impact on these animals. And I think we are close to being at the point where I can say, with a lot of scientific rigor, all of what you guys are doing there is negatively impacting these animals. I don't want to keep monitoring this and just watch their demise. I want right. this to stop. I want it to change. And I want to do it in a way that you can eventually show that you can do this in a sustainable way that doesn't impact these animals negatively. Like, I know the way that the krill fishery is set up and managed, it's managed in a way that takes a very small fraction of the total amount of krill out. But if you take all of that krill from this one place at this one time of year where these animals rely on it, you're going to have an impact on those animals. Take it from a bigger area at a slightly different time of year. Sorry if you have to spend a little more time on the water doing it and it's not quite as efficient. You can do it at another time of a year. A whale can't change its biology and its needs to feed when it, you know, when it can. A fishery can absolutely do that.
And you know what? Why do we even have a fishery, right? This is bionutraceuticals for pet food, for salmon feed, krill oil supplements that are, for the most part, not really beneficial to people. There's not a huge need for this krill fishery in our day-to-day -day lives. So why can't it go away? It's a small fleet. We don't need it to exist. We don't need it to make our lives as people better. So ideal world, the krill fishery goes away, you know, and we don't even have to worry about that. And we minimize the things that we're doing to negatively impact these animals in their day-to-day -day lives. Do you think that'll happen? I don't know. Um, the more I learn about the bureaucracy and the management of the fishery and how this all has to operate, the less I think what I'm doing would shut it down. I absolutely think that if we do enough pressuring from the top and pressuring from the bottom, that there has to be a squeeze that is eventually felt. But I also absolutely recognize that you can do all of this work and unless it hits the right person in the right way, it may not have an impact. So that's where I'm kind of rolling the dice and saying, you know what? We get enough of these whale videos out there. There's enough tourist boats going down there. Maybe somebody who is in a high enough position, they, their children, their spouse, will have this connection, will see this, will experience it, be like, you know what? Like, I kind of dug that. I want my kids to be able to see that. I can do something pretty easily in my position to change the shape of that ecosystem for a long time. And I feel like that is an absolute can be done. It's just a matter of getting that person or those people to have that impetus. And so whether, I don't care if you do it because you want to save the krill fishery or because you want your kids to be able to experience Antarctica the way that you did. As long as it gets done, like, just get it done. And that is the perfect segue because so, there is one particular paper that I found from your lab that I did want to take some time to discuss. So as anyone who's listening for a while or we even brought it up, we touched it up, I am a big advocate of conservation tourism. And as we know, tourism in Antarctica has freaking boomed. It is crazy the number of ships that are going down there now when it used to be such a, a far-fetched thing to do. Now it is way more just accessible to the normal person to go do you have to have some means it's not that affordable by any means but more people are doing it now and this one particular paper because COVID-19 kind of gave us a natural-ish experiment of human presence versus no human presence especially when it comes to tourism ships and your team found that there was a significant drop in cortisol levels in the whales um, post-COVID when there was no tourism ships so I want to talk about the application of this a little bit more. How does this make you feel? Because just like you said, the right person has the right experience in wildlife and nature. And it could be a game changer in all, in all different aspects across the world. I've seen it now in multiple different places. You know, it could be going on a gorilla trek in Uganda. It could be all of these uh, just, you know, going to the beaches of Alaska and seeing a coastal bear. And then, you know, the, the pebble mine gets shut down. You know, like th there's things that there could be so much momentum behind them. And I could see how Antarctic tourism is one of those key players on keeping, well, one, climate change is very real. You can't go down there and not see climate change. You see all of these different things. But your team found that there is a direct level to cortisol and human presence in whales. So 
I guess I just kind of want to maybe go on a discussion about that. How do you feel about tourism possibly expanding and what it might do to whales? Like, do you have personal conflicts about it? Or is this kind of one of those, it's just is what it is? Or yeah, just just tell me a little bit more about what you think about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's right up front. It's right in front of us right now. And I feel like this is this is one of those opportunities where we do it the right way. We set a template for how to do things responsibly and sustainably without making big leaps, without proper knowledge. And so, I, you know, first and foremost, at this point in my life, I really see the value of people going and experiencing the Antarctic mm -hmm. and visiting it. I know how moved I was by going down there and having those experiences with those animals in, in that place. You know, I've, I've published books on photography from down there. A lot of people do that. Those are nice, but it is sorely never going to have the impact of if you actually go and experience that place. And from that perspective alone, I think if you really want people to put their money where their mouth is to conserve and protect a place, you have to experience it and you have to have that emotional connection to it. There are a lot of boats, like you said, that are going down there. The number of people in ships are expanding every year. There is a group, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, that is sort of, you know, a self-governing body that sort of creates the guidelines for going down there and being responsible. We work directly with them. They've given us a couple of grants and fellowships. Like I have a, a student who is working directly with them to model ship strike uh, potential in the Antarctic mm. tourism industry and utilize the tag data that we have and all of the information from the ship traffic and put together um, an assessment of where and when whales are at risk from being struck by ships. And it works kind of both ways where we can highlight the areas where the ships go fast, but there's not a lot of whales at that certain time of year where we can say, look, the risk is very low because of these reasons. But in these other places, this is where you guys need to focus your energy on slowing down. That industry has already had a voluntary slowdown to a low, a lower speed level in a lot of these places that they just generally knew whales were very present. So they're being proactive in those ways, but also seeking out sort of expert advice and opinion on that and encouraging that in how their operators do things. One of my graduate students is doing a project where we are looking at the behavioral and physiological response of whales to small zodiacs and, and whale watching boats on the water mm. and trying to well, understand. Yeah. And so what's great is, you know, we've got a lot of precedent for doing this kind of work in California and other parts of the world. We want to do it in the Antarctic, but we want to be very specific and say, not all whales are the same and not all times of year are the same. You know, these animals show up in the Antarctic in December, January. They've been fasting for six months. They are drained of their energy. Feeding is like the most important thing to those animals. So it might mean that those animals are very directed in their feeding and they might never get disturbed by a boat because feeding is the most important thing to them. Or if they do get disturbed, they're missing out on feeding opportunities at a critical time for them. And so we need to study this early in the season. And then like, let's say March or April, the whales have been feeding for three or four months. They're much more healthy and robust. 
Maybe they sleep during the day and that rest is critical. And if we disturb that rest, they don't put on their weight as efficiently. Or maybe they just snooze and they get so food coma that they don't even, you know, (laughs) see us as a bother. I mean, that definitely happens. But by working and doing those experiments, we can be dynamic and say, hey, look, in January, let's keep this threshold at 100 meters. But hey, look, by March or April, you can get a bit up close to these animals without affecting them in a negative way. And so being dynamic in how the human behavior goes on around them. And then the thing I should say about this is that this is work that is being facilitated and supported by the tourism industry as well. So over the last say 10 years or so. I've been going down on on tourism ships for for a number of years. But in the last 10 years or so, operators have started putting together trips that not only focus on seeing marine mammals, but also have more scientists on board to Mm. be a value added to the passenger experience. And it started with this group, One Ocean, that I worked with. There's this wonderful Canadian company that had this ethos of we're an expedition ship. It's not very, you know, swanky, but we want people that want to be off the boat exploring and seeing these things. And they approached me years back and said, hey, we want to extend our season to the end of the season, March or April, where we know there's a lot of whales, but we don't really, we haven't done that before. Like, can you sort of advise us on how to do that? And would you be interested in going on board as sort of an expedition guide? And I said, fuck yeah. Like, that sounds like a great idea. Sign me up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, especially if we can do some science. And they were like, you could do some science on that? And I was like, sure, why not? And they were like, that might be the coolest thing ever. So I started working with that group. And we'd send two or three or four people down on these trips at the end of the year. We would collect biopsy samples. We would put tags on. The passengers would see this all happening. And, like, they would lose their minds. Like, I, I amazing video. The first time we ever put a tag on a minky whale, a video tag on a minky whale, it happened right in the shadow of the main ship. And there were 150 passengers on the railings. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about it. I put the tag on the animal and I just hear screaming and like, cheering. Like, what, is, what is going on? <laughs> Seriously. And I looked at the ship and like everybody was out there just like fired up. That's, and I got goosebumps. Amazing. About that. Oh, it, it's That's awesome. So cool. so, That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. And so after that company started doing that, more companies, I think some of it is like, let's, you know, let's get on board with this because it, it's it's something that's going to bring on more passengers. But I do feel like these these companies really do care. And so now we work with companies like Hurtigruten. They give us berths on 10 or 12 ships a year. So I can send two of my students down for a month at a time, two months at a time. They're flying drones. They're collecting biopsies. They're deploying tags. They are getting us down there, which is the hardest part, and allowing us to do the science. We come back every day. We show the passengers, hey, here's the tag. Here's the biopsy sample. Here's the drone footage we took. The passengers see it as like this unbelievably cool opportunity to see cutting-edge science happening right in front of them. So I I have this faith and I have this positivity that as long as the growth is managed in a way that is based on the best available information and the most, like I said, burden of proof before that it's the most, you know, conservative and that we don't do things until we realize that they don't have an impact. And we don't do things unless we are confident that uh, it's not going to be sort of a negative for those animals. 
that this tourism can be a really valuable tool to get a whole army of people that leave this trip completely changed, completely like wanting to think about what they can do so they can either come back, share this with their kids, support research, or do something legislatively to say, hey, look, I had this experience. I wanted to be around. What do I need to do? You know, who do I need to talk to uh, in order to have that done? So I, I try and think about all the positives, you know, of it. There definitely are negatives. Obviously, you can't have a lot of people and a lot of ships down there without a big carbon footprint, without the opportunity for there to be some something that humans leave other than footprints down there. But the number of places that that are visited relative to the entirety of the area, I feel like it's worth having those places that get compromised a little bit in order to to save the whole. Uh, yeah, and I think this is a perfect opportunity. I'm so glad that you brought all of that up because I've sat down with a kind of a counterpart in your field, Allison Kusick in episode 75. She studies phytoplankton off Hurtigruten mm-hmm. ships. And then I sat down with Daniel, the CEO of Hurtigruten, as, you know, being a leader in sustainable cruising. And so that's just so funny. Like, And I met you all completely in totally different ways, <laughs> but there's all these... All these overlapping connections. And then, um, yeah, Michelle LaRue, who studies seals and penguins down there and uses a lot of satellite imagery. She's uh, partnered with uh, Limblad Expeditions, too, and goes on those ships, too. So it's just it's just so cool. I this is why I one Well, not the reason, but one of the main reasons why I loved and I switched my career to conservation tourism is because of this reason, because, you know, being a scientist, I saw that, okay, this is literally putting our money where our mouth is and monetizing essentially these areas and seeing the impact of that and how much people are moved and then the impact that happens after everybody comes back you know so yeah i love that you i absolutely love that you brought that up and that you've seen the impact i mean so you said for 10 years now you've been going down on ships how many expeditions do you think you've done if you could just give like a ballpark number Um, I mean, between 40 and 50, right? I started doing science in 97. I think the first tourism trip I was on in 2003 or 2004, um, when it was a very small industry. And then it's been a a very serial thing since, you know, for probably the past 10 years uh, on the tourism trips. Yeah. That's so cool. And I think that this also, I need to take a second to maybe let's let's talk to the people now who might not be able to afford to go to Antarctica. I mean, I have not been able to dish 10K plus myself to go do this. So I understand. I mean, especially it's almost sometimes I feel like those of us that are in this field, we know all the things that are going to help the planet, but we have the least amount of means to do it. And it's like this personal battle. I know that I deal with it all the time. But for those of us that might not be able to afford a trip anytime soon, maybe never, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do from Canada, U.S., U.K., Europe, anywhere else that might be able to help with our whales in Antarctica? You know, um, donating blood, um, bake sales, you know, I mean, do whatever you have to do to get the funds to go down, you know, would be my like... Yeah, sell a kidney. You know, you got sell to like, give one up. Sit down there for a couple yeah, hours, yeah. sell some plasma. Yeah, um, yeah. I I absolutely re- do recognize that there's a there is a very thin crust of the population of the planet that gets to go down and experience it. What I try to do on those trips is to implore people and to sort of make them self reflect and recognize like 
you go down there and you have this experience and yes, you're paying for it, but that doesn't release you of the burden of now being an ambassador, you know, like you have to be moved by this place. And I would, I mean, I, to the point that I probably pissed some people off, I tell them like, you, <laughs> you can't leave here and not be an advocate now, you know, it's just not right. <laughs> and if you are going to be a person that takes from this environment in terms of getting down there and having these experiences, you need to pay it back, you know? So that's what I try and do with, with, with the passengers. Like I said, they're on those, but I struggle with how to emotionally connect with the vast majority of the population and people, like you said, that the passionate people tend not tend to be, but there's a huge amount of very passionate and willing and wanting conservationists that just can't simply afford to go down there. And I wish I, I honestly, I wish I had a better answer. I think, yeah, fine. Blue planets are great. You know, videos and stuff are, are great. If, and if you're already sort of at that level of caring about it, um, maybe you don't need to be convinced to go down there. You know, maybe the push that you need to make that the place where you direct your energy is something that can be achieved through other ways. The, the thing I will say about the passengers in the Antarctic, you absolutely have people that are like bucket list, like yes. I've saved for 20 years so I can get down there. Those people like I want, I just give them a hug and I, I thank them and, and tell them I appreciate everything that they're doing. It's the families or the groups of people that go down that are like, that was the last place I hadn't been to, you know, or like mm. um, we're here because we can be. Like those are the people that I, you need to change their mind and tell them about their responsibility, you know, now to do more you know, with what they have, because those people have a disproportionate impact on what happens, you know, in the planet in some ways. And so I feel like that could be a negative, but it can also be a positive, you know. I feel like since we're so ingrained in this field and it's the people who are not in this field that we we need to create warmth in their heart to come around to these kinds of things, to have more action in this. And just finding the way or sharing the blue planet or something just to tie, just to start to plant the seeds to change someone's mind, not come up to the face and be like, sell your gas car right now because you're ruining the planet. Like that's not going to work. It's never going to work. Accusing somebody of their way of life is never going to change them. And I just, I try to tell people that all the time. It's like, meet them on their level. What are they going to care about that we can just Maybe just a little bit here or there that's going to help them uh, maybe just live a little bit greener life because then all of us combined, then that's when real change is going to happen. And then, yeah, if there is a somebody that you do have the means, that maybe if somebody listening has a grandparent <laughs> that's rich and they're like, let's go on a vacation, like, let's go to freaking Antarctica, you know, <laughs> that'd be sick. <laughs> I don't have that, but maybe someone does. Um, yeah, that'd be. But it, 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 it raises a couple of really good points, too, and that's. I mean, so one is that I would not be as um, presumptuous as to think that everybody cares about the Antarctic or should, you know? I think mm -hmm. if you're talking about people that have a limited amount or a limited bandwidth for what they can contribute and what they can put their energy into, oftentimes I think it's much more important to do something local to where they are and where they can affect that change. You know, like there are enough issues and things that need to be changed that I don't feel good if I take that away from people that otherwise could have had a bigger impact in their home community doing something local, you know, where 
you would see the outcome of that and you would see this conservation success, which is more important is to have these success stories and show, hey, look, even if all you were able to do is donate, you know, your weekends, you were able to create a park or to revitalize this natural area and celebrate like that victory and that win and have that be something that you can be proud of and that other people can look at and see that it gets done. You know, the Antarctic is a faraway place and it's a big shit show of an issue, but do what you can at home, you know, and, and in the places that, that you care about and that you see every day. Right. It's amazing how far planting a tree goes, you know, I kind of want to make an admission when I finally can afford some land. Who knows? That'll be when I'm going to finally afford some land. I just want to start planting a shit ton of trees. I'm like, I think that's going to be one of my number one contributions because it's habitat <laughs> that's taking CO2 out of the air. That's all of these different things. It's, it's incredible. Everyone was like, you know, plant a tree. But no, really, think about it from like a science standpoint. Planting a tree is one of the best things that you can really do for even helping whales in Antarctica because then that'll help slow climate change. Like it's something that's so small that, is, that all of us can do, essentially. I mean, most people listening, we, we can plant a tree, you know, or we can go revitalize a park or something like that or volunteer with Nature Conservancy or some something, something, something like That'll go so far, you know. I'm trying to convince my dad to rewild this uh field back behind the house right now, and that is not working. But I'm trying. <laughs> they're used. They call me. They, they, I I honestly I found this like the biggest compliment that my mom told me the other day. She's just like, you know, you're my hippie child, but you're not annoying about it. I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, that is like the best compliment I've ever heard. Yeah, you like love the earth and you're a hippie child, but like you're not annoying about it, you know? And I think that just goes to yep. show that the way you, the message that you're perceiving in the world and the, how you're talking to other people goes far and people, they pay attention to that and they they see what you do, they respect what you do. And, you know, when you walk the walk and you talk the talk, that that goes really far too. So, yeah, no, that was that was fantastic. Um, and then, so let's let's take a second to switch back to you for a moment because everything we've talked about is just incredible. You've been down there fifty times, like you've done all these incredible things. You're leading a lab. You are being interviewed by these big outlets, like you know everybody knows who Ari is. So I know from personal experience, because I'm a person and you are as well, that not every day is beautiful, that there are some times in our career or our life or our journey that is very hard to overcome. And so was there a time or is there a time or are you currently going through something that was a very difficult moment for you in your career that you overcome that you would be okay sharing with us? Has anything happened like that? Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to share it. I, I should also say, I don't know what kind of like voodoo you have, but I don't, I mean, I hate talking about myself. You know, I, 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 I don't, I don't like to do it very much. So maybe I'm just getting it all out at once, you know, but um, <laughs> I'm good. At yeah. I appreciate having the same space. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's been a lot of uncomfortable times. Um I started my family, you know, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I'm 48. So I didn't have kids until a little bit later in, in my life. And I think one of the benefits to that was that I, I realized in a very selfish way that in order to do the things that I thought needed to be done for me to be successful, 
I needed to bust my ass, be in the field six, eight months of the year doing all of that work. And that had to be my primary focus. And it was definitely selfish because I love what I do, right? And I, that's all I wanted to be doing. But I, I wasn't able to sort of settle down and have a family. At the same time, the position that I had as a research faculty, a soft money faculty for some of that time, I needed to create my own salary, you know? And so the things that I was good at meant that if I was going to be on grants and get sent, you know, all corners of the world, it was going to be for the skills that I had. And so I didn't have a desk job. I couldn't do that. And I realized that. And I realized that it was very selfish, that I was away from my family, that I couldn't start a family in good conscience, you know, and do that because I think I would have felt very conflicted and possibly I would have felt, you know, I would have felt like this is keeping me from doing these things, you yeah, know, absolutely. and the, I, the last thing I'd ever want to do is to have, I mean, cause my family would, would come first a hundred percent of the time. And I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel like I had to sacrifice that and have this sort of contempt from that, you know, in, in my work life. And so as I've matured, and when I did sort of have a family, the timing was coincident with when I had a more permanent position where I didn't have to hustle as much. I didn't have the energy to. And I had much more of this desire to be sort of home and to be a father and to be a husband. And so that happened in a very wonderful way where now my focus can be on providing the opportunities for you know, the the next generation for being a mentor to those and giving them the opportunities that I was given and not having to be at the vanguard and always being out in the field. It means I don't pick the crappy trips. I don't go on the boats that leak. I only go on like the really nice <laughs> trips now that like fit into the schedule nice and neatly. And, you know, um, I, I mean, I do appreciate that benefit of it, but I feel so lucky that, that, that I've been able to move through through my career without feeling like I had to sacrifice something permanently and that things have worked out in timing-wise and professionally for me in a way that I'm really, really incredibly grateful for. But along the way, you feel like an imposter all the time. You know, you feel like someone is always, at some point, someone's going to figure out like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. All he can do is put a tag on an animal. Like, he's not a scientist, you know. They're not testing hypotheses or doing lab experiments. It's all whales. Like, whales aren't a quantitative and a rigorous science, you know. Um, and so I've probably pushed harder than I would have otherwise because I felt like you, you kind of have to overcompensate, you know, a little mm. bit. Given the animals that we work on and the systems that you work on, and that it it seems kind of fluffy and even doing a lot of media, you know, it's like who people, hard scientists don't do that. If you're a real scientist, you're working on these things. You don't need the public and you don't need to be on you know, these documentaries and doing this kind of stuff. Like that's what you do when you don't have something better to do, you know, and I've, I, I think about that a lot. And I also absolutely recognize that people who don't do that are jealous <laughs> for the most part, you know. And that they don't have the opportunity to do that. And you give them the opportunity, they would love to. And they would want to share and think that what they do is important and exciting. Um, but I also think 
I had to, uh, I've had to pull back on, uh, frankly, on believing that what I do really, and that it's the most serious thing in the world, you know? Like I mentioned, the Antarctica, the whales, it's like kind of the peaks of like the place in the animal. And you can start to believe a little bit when people uh, say they want to come and see you in the Antarctic and be on a boat with you doing these things and how important that is. And it's like, no, it really isn't. You know, what you do at home is is important. You know, the the people in your lives that you impact and provide for, like that's important, you know? And I definitely probably fell victim to that a little early in my career when I didn't have sort of that other side of the foil to sort of check me, you know? And you believe, oh, I'm getting these grants. I'm writing these papers. I'm in, you know, I'm on these shows and stuff. Like, I must be hot shit. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, you know? So, yeah, be, be, becoming more humble, you know, in that sense, I think has been something I've learned to do quite a bit. Yeah, that's so great. Being humble is one of the, I think, the best qualities we can get. And it's just amazing. Like, when we're 22, we all think we're hot shit. It's fine. And then we all oh, grow totally. up, we're like, yeah. Uh, no, wow, I was humbled hard there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, you know, what are you most proud of? Um, I guess definitely the things I'm, I mean, there are some things I'm most proud of science wise, and there's things I'm most proud of, you know, outside of my science for sure. I, I think I'm most proud of the fact that I'm in a position where I can mentor and provide opportunities for other people right now and that I'm not doing something just to fulfill my own interests and needs, you know? And honestly, that's it's actually pretty parallel because, I mean, I'm most proud of being a father right now, you know, and being a dad and that I feel like I'm – at least I haven't screwed that one up yet, you know, but that <laughs> – Too early to tell. <laughs> that, it's too early. Well – I don't know. I see some qualities. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> but, uh, I know. I think it's. I think it's. I'm most proud of being a provider. You know, at this point, like I said, either for my for my lab and the the students that I can give opportunities to, and create an environment that's uh, that people want to be part of. You know, that that people feel good and included in, and and safe. You know, uh, the other thing I'll say that I, I'm kind of really proud of is that I haven't I haven't let myself kind of be bound by being a scientist in the traditional mm -hmm. way. You know, my so I grew up my mother is is an art museum curator, my father's a physician, and art and science coming together and meeting and being complementary was something that I kind of grew up with. And my mom started this really amazing project with with medical schools where they get first-year medical schools to come into the art galleries and learn observational skills and ways to describe what they're seeing that can then be translated to being observational skills as a doctor. That's um, so either cool. looking at a pathology slide, yeah, or you know, a skin lesion or something. But different ways to think about what you're seeing and describing it. And what I've had the opportunity to do in the last several years here is to become much more intimate with the art community here and we have the Institute for Arts and Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, and I've been able to collaborate with a couple of artists here and to put together new exhibits and come up with novel ways of thinking about how you translate information and provide it to people in, in new ways. Wow. I, I think it's 
super naive and and a bit hubris to think that just because you're doing science, that that information can get out to people and everybody's going to absorb it in the way that you want them to. And so if you don't, if you don't get outside of this little itty bitty community of scientists and you're just, you're in an echo chamber, right? And so working with a different community and trying to work with artists to challenge the ways that I think about doing things, but also seeing how other people respond to imagery or to immersion in art or different mediums and how you can get information to people in different ways, I think is critical because we are part of a relatively small community that's active in conservation and science, but it's going to take everybody having the same momentum and pushing in the same direction to get things done. And so how can you broaden your community of people that are receiving a message or getting this, you know, knowledge and, and having empathy. And for me, it's going outside of science, going to these different communities and learning about how people think differently, how they learn differently and making myself more aware of that so that I can either work directly with those artists or do things in a way that facilitates information getting uh, to a more broad audience. That's so cool. That's what this show is all about. Honestly, it's like taking <laughs> translating the science into something that is more just available and accessible to more people. I mean, sometimes I do yep. kind of nerd out on science and I might need to like figure that out. But yeah, I completely, I completely get it. You know, I think also too, you know, I'm also a musician. So seeing how you can look at the world in a different way and there is a different way to feel the world or to experience it or to yep. go lost in these other places and and that's all, we're all that too. Like you can be a scientist and an artist. Because I think before it was just so siloed, you know, like you can't be two things or you can't mingle with the artist at, that's working at the art museum downtown because you're too dissimilar. Well, when actually we're probably looking at an issue or, you know, solving a problem in the same way, like maybe how somebody makes a piece of art is probably the same way that we might try to figure out how to come up with the next project or how are we going to study this whale, you know? So I think there's a lot more overlap and also it's more beautiful that way. The more voices we can get in and just like you said, how that artist might interpret your work on whales in Antarctica, you know, might move somebody more versus, you know, somebody who's a hardcore scientist and like, they're just going to want to read all of your, you know, recent papers that were issued in 2023 or something like that. So I love what you're doing. I love all of these different takes that you are having right now when it comes to getting the word out about Antarctic conservation, because that's the best way, like you said, to, to get the word out. It's just, it's just so good. One of the other things that I feel like we've been able to do in the last few years is make this connection of showing that whales are part of an ecosystem. They're not an mm. endpoint in an ecosystem and they aren't, they don't live in a vacuum and that healthy whales equals healthy oceans and healthy oceans equal healthy whales. And that there's this feedback in what whales provide as nutrient recycling and other carbon sequestration opportunities that having whales means that you have a healthy ecosystem because there's enough things to support them. But having those whales there then recycle things to help perpetuate this, this working environment. And having whales be seen as more of a part of something rather than a destination for, you know, for an ecosystem I think has changed people's views quite a bit as well. And I think that's a very important thing for us to be able to sort of push 
in terms of conservation now, because we're not just protecting whales, we're protecting ecosystems by protecting whales. Yeah, I love this new approach to conservation that's ecosystem level. Yeah, I think there's still, I personally think there's definitely value, especially connecting people with like a charismatic species, like a humpback whale or something like that. But then, yeah, the message that comes after that is it's the whole ecosystem that we need to protect. It's all of Antarctica where they are found or, you know, they make these massive migrations. We need to protect the migration route and, you know, those those kinds of things. Yeah. So I love the new messages of conservation that I'm now seeing. Um, there's some that I don't like. But that's that's a whole different conversation. But that stuff I love. Like I love this like, ecosystem approach. You know, it's it's rewilding the American prairie. It's you know, it's these these bigger conversations now that are happening um, that I'm seeing now all across the world and, and landscape level, ocean level. You know, it's and finding out that our protected areas aren't big enough. They're not connected enough because it's not protecting the whole ecosystem. So, yeah, I absolutely love that approach. And then I love this question because it's just so fun. What is your wildest, craziest story from the field? The what what audience are we? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, what audience are we uh, making this um, available for? <laughs> whatever way is not going to get you in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, that's you, no fun. That's no I fun. Know. <laughs> You, when I say that, whatever the story is that comes to mind, that's the one I want to hear. I will tell you about, about the most magical day that I had um, working in the field. And I, it was February 14th, 2014. I mean, I remember every, absolutely everything about it. It was a trip that we were on. We had been given a small amount of ship time to, to look for Antarctic minke whales. It was a species we had never studied because people said they are super skittish. There are not a lot of them. They don't come near boats. It's a kind of a waste of time. We're never going to understand them. Somehow I convinced the National Science Foundation to give us a little bit of time to go see if we could do something with them. We'd already figured out humpback whales. They sleep. We can work with them easy, you know, and we were in Wilhelmina Bay, this place that really was an incredibly special place for us. And I was on this trip. I had my mentor, Andy, Doug, my buddy, Dave. I had people that were my colleagues, my friends that I wanted to be in the field with. And that's, that's the other thing that I am really proud of is that I'm able to do work with people I care about and that, you know, we, we don't we kind of have a no asshole policy, you know, in our little gang of people we work with. But anyway, so... We woke up this morning and I remember we were on the bridge of the ship and way in the distance, way deep, deep in the bay, one of our graduate students, this woman, Rennie, said, oh, I see some blows. You know, there's small blows back there. What what are they? And we all started looking through our binoculars and we're like, oh, it's probably a group of killer whales. Like, oh, pretty cool. You know, let's keep an eye on them. Let's, let's move in the bay a little more, see if we can get to them. And as we're kind of looking through the binoculars, there's just like more and more of these blows. And I'm like, I'm not seeing any big dorsal fins. Like, does anybody see like a big dorsal fin? Like, I'm not sure they're killer whales. Like, what else could they be? Eventually, we figured it out. It was this group of 40 Antarctic minke whales. We'd never seen more than three or four together at a time. Wow. Put the small boat in the water. I was like, just get the fuck out there. We've got to like book it to these animals. We came into this group of about 40 animals and it was just glassy calm overcast day so everything is kind of these shades of steel and kind of granity colors and the whales were 
40 of them surfacing once here that go under a piece of ice, come up on the other side. And we had no idea sort of like how to engage with these animals and like if, whether or not we were going to scatter them by kind of approaching them or whatnot. So we, I was like, let's just try and ease up next to them sort of. And before we knew it, and so I'm standing up in the pulpit, you know, the boat. And before I know it, they're literally like whales bow riding under the Zodiac <sighs> and we're just cruising and like everything is quiet. Everything is calm, except there's 40 whales around us. I mean, two feet away, you could literally, you could just reach down and touch it. And I just remember standing up there and looking down and it, it, you never even see their flukes move. They're just like these missiles in the water. And I started seeing each animal as an individual. I'd never been that close to them before. And I'm like, there's these unbelievable intricacies in like their pigment patterns and the diatoms on them and the scars and the little nicks on them. And I was like, I'm seeing these animals for the first time like this and they're letting us kind of be one of the herd, you know? And we had this, I don't know, three hours with them, just cruising around with them. We put a suction cup tag on, we emptied all of our satellite tags on these animals uh -huh. and they were still with us. And it just was one of these remarkable days where, I saw something I'd never even imagined I'd ever get to see, let alone that it existed. But also this feedback of we were something of interest to them. You know, we weren't a threat. We weren't an annoyance. We were just kind of there and they were curious. They rolling over, looking at us and engaging with us. And it it just gave me this perspective of like, we're, we're definitely not the norm here, but they don't see that as anything more than a curiosity, you know, not a threat. And how can you feel like you don't want to protect or have a connection with that after that kind of moment? And especially with these animals that are just totally under, unknown, understudied, but are, but are out there every day, you know, and we just got a little magical moment with them that like, changed my life in a lot of ways oh this just sounds so beautiful <laughs> it's oh, yeah. so incredible I, I have a couple i have a couple photos from that day that i that i look at all the time and wow um yeah, i'll send you a few of the ones from there i mean they are like in my mind's eye what i think about all the time you know wow that's amazing Oh, we've talked about so much and I feel like I could literally talk to you until I'm blue in the face. But I I love to wrap up my conversations with incredible people with this question. If there is a piece of advice or a message that you would like us listening to walk away with, what would that be? You know, I think that whatever you believe is important is worth investing your energy in and having a cause and being passionate about it, I think is really important. I don't think there's, a, there's nothing that can stop you from, from doing those things, you know, if you believe in them and if you care about them and it's going to be a struggle and you may not see sort of the fruits of it very frequently or very often, but rest assured that if you put your energy and your heart into it and, and you care, like you're, you're making a difference and, I wish more people were able to 
have the feeling of success or be told that what they're doing is valuable and, and important. Mm. Yeah. Well, to anyone listening, what you do on your day to day is important and you're important and keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) We all have our mission. We all have our why. Awesome. All right. Okay. Okay. Let's say somebody listening, they want to follow your lab. They want to read all your scientific papers or maybe see what you're up to. If there's any crazy documentaries, like, yeah, where can somebody go to follow you, follow what you're doing and maybe learn more about whales? Uh, man, I'm a, I'm horrible with most of the social media platforms. <laughs> I, I really do not <laughs> engage uh, on that very much. Uh, you know, visit our website at UC Santa Cruz, the Biotelemetry and Behavioral Ecology Lab, and there's links to the projects and the partners that we work with. And those are the most important people. It's it's a gateway to to learning um, and see what people are doing, what kind of cool science is out there, and and different projects, new techniques, that kind of stuff. But you know, just use me as a as a gateway. Don't don't stop don't stop and uh, on me for any reason. <laughs> Oh, and of course, I will always have all relevant links in the show notes. So just check out rewildology.com and all of them will be there for this episode. And we'll make sure you get over to Ari and I will blast this out everywhere. And thanks, Colby, for introducing us. I very appreciate that. This was an incredible talk and I, I foresee a lot more in the future. So Ari, thank you so much again. Of course. Thank you. I appreciate you. Do you also feel like you just listened to a masterclass in Antarctic whale conservation? I personally really appreciated Ari taking the time to explain each point he made. Ari also mentioned several organizations during our conversation, which I have listed in the show notes on the website. If you'd like to learn more about whales and the work Ari is doing, I recommend starting there and seeing which whale-sized rabbit hole you decide to go down. Only good things will come from that exploration. Again, I want to personally thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. Please consider supporting the show however you like, whether it be by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast app, signing up for the weekly newsletter through the website, following the show on social media. We're even on the new Threads app, so please join us there. Sending a donation to help keep these stories on the airwaves or purchasing a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love to everyone you know. Lastly, I want to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. To see the Focusrite gear I use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>